Welcome to the Make You Famous Podcast, where host Jeffrey Goldsmith talks with guests about fame and how to achieve it. I'm your host, Jeffrey Goldsmith, and check out the book at makeyoufamous.co. Doug Menue is a photographer who has traveled to the North Pole, the Amazon, Vietnam, Africa, Dubai, Japan to record the human condition, covering everything from the orphans of Uganda to the rise of Silicon Valley. Welcome, Doug. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. One thing that really interests me about your work is, you know, given that I'm living, what's interesting is I'm living in San Francisco and you're living in the town where I grew up, Sargates, New York. And what's interesting is you lived here in the early 80s and began covering the technology scene in, in the early days before anyone knew about what was going to happen with the, with the technology revolution. Tell us some, about some of the people you photographed and, and, and what you saw and what you experienced in those early days. Well, I went out to Silicon Valley. Actually, let me rephrase that. I went out to San Francisco to go to Art Institute to study art mm-hmm. and be an artist. Mm-hmm fell in with a group of photojournalists and shifted my studies to photojournalism and began working for newspapers and then Time and Newsweek and Life and began covering assignments around the U.S. and around the world. And I was documenting a lot of social issues, the AIDS crisis, the homeless crisis. But, you know, coming back from the famine in Ethiopia, I began looking for something that was a little bit more positive for the human race. And that's mm-hmm. when Steve Jobs announced he was going to build a supercomputer for education. He'd been fired from Apple and he was starting over. That's really what attracted me to Silicon Valley. I wasn't into technology per se, although I hadn't mm-hmm. bought a Mac. I bought one of the first Macs because it was interesting and it seemed to be a creative tool. But what attracted me to Silicon Valley was once I got down there, you could see this hidden power. And it essentially was a misunderstood and kind of a hidden tribe with this astonishing power. You could see they were going to change every aspect of human life, even then in the early 80s. If you just showed up and went and talked to them, you'd see that it was going to happen. When was that, Doug? What year was that? I really began seriously covering the Valley with Steve Jobs for Life magazine in 1985, the end of 85 and into 1986. But I hadn't gone down there. I'd gone down there on a few assignments as early as 1982. I found an Apple computer in 1982. It wasn't about tech. It was about this group of humans on a quest to invent the impossible that just really got me interested. And what is that? I mean, there there are probably people today on on quest to solve the impossible. What? Is, how do you find them? How do you? In, and what do you look for? And tell us about that because I'm sure there's people out there who are who are, who are craving finding some discovering a tribe like this somewhere. Well, what I'm looking for is this intangible you can't put in a business plan. You know, we have this big startup culture. In the 80s, it was very idealistic and naive almost. They knew they'd make money, but that was secondary. That led to huge breakthroughs because money, it turns out, just isn't enough to walk through this, like, blazing fire of innovation. It's just too fucking hard, excuse me. It's really hard. So what's happened in the last 10 or 15 years since the crash is that innovation is iterative. We're building on stuff that was foundational from the 80s and 90s and creating really cool stuff. And that is innovation, but it's more iteration of previous stuff. And to go to the next revolution, to go to the next level and really create some amazing new stuff, you have to have, I believe, that spirit, that original spirit that was about inventing tools to improve human life. They were very, very, they weren't purely altruistic, but they were very idealistic. And yeah, they want to do cool stuff. But what attracts me is that 
sort of sense of purpose where they created meaning in their lives because they were so passionate about what they were doing that they would sacrifice anything to do it. That that attracts me because it gives me hope for the human race when you see that. Right. Now, that's been kind right. of crushed. That spirit's been crushed. So I see little green shoots of hope coming back with this next generation of entrepreneurs and innovators. They're, they're, they are looking for meaning, and some of them are very idealistic and want to do, you know, you, have you heard about B Corps and there's more of oh yeah they, I I I know, I know people who who run B Corps B Corps and 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 work uh, you know I've met folks that are part of that organization absolutely that are more socially you know they they, they commit themselves to social uh, justice and social improvement and fairness and those kind of things you know you before we started recording you talked about purpose I mean and it's something that I've noticed. Um, I, I spoke to a, um, uh, a psychologist in New York, uh, uh, Dr. Donald Rockwell, who helps celebrities who are feeling alienated by their success. And one thing she said that helps folks is, you know, who become successful is that they find a purpose or a higher calling to focus on to help them to give meaning to their work. And, and we talked about you uh, doing that before we started recording. With some think, of your yeah. projects, yeah. Well, well, for me, I I started as a kid just documenting in the streets in the area to photography. But later on, years later, I suddenly realized that was just about me trying to figure out who I was by photographing the other, if you will, or strangers, and then sort of seeing where I fit in the whole equation. I think that's why people still look at still photos to understand the back of their mind. They're saying, "Who am I? Why am I here?" You know, because we frame that mm-hmm. subconscious. And photographs seem to be a great data set for us to understand the world around us and who we are and how we fit in, either by contrast with the pickle in the pictures or what we have in common or what we aspire to. But for me, Mm -hmm. that idealism I was talking about, yeah, I'm a romantic, and I want to have purpose in my own life. And the way I do that is by documenting things that I think maybe it's not the greatest, most exciting, maybe it's not the most visual but there's some power to what these people that I'm shooting are doing, and they're creating meaning in their own lives. So when I was shooting Steve Jobs and all these people, I realized one day, well, I hadn't changed the world with my pictures, but here are the people right in front of me. They definitely are changing everything in the world. So all I had to do was show up, create a record of their lives, and that became my purpose. And so I think in our work as photographers, as documentary photographers, or whatever we do, whatever we're shooting, if you are passionate about the subject matter, if you really are interested, it's really important to figure that out. Even if it seems like there's no one's going to care, even if there's no way you're ever going to publish it or whatever, if you're interested in it, you got to follow that. You have to make that mm-hmm. your mission. You have mm-hmm. to make that your mission because what, whatever, whatever else you might do, if you're not truly passionate and love with what you're shooting and the subject matter or you're learning from that, you know, it's not going to probably mean anything to you or me or anyone else. I've noticed uh, on Facebook that you're still shooting technology folks. You were just in New York um, shooting, uh, what was it? It was, a, it was a hacker weekend or something and super interesting photographs. I mean, you, you've photographed everything from Bill Packard all the way to, you know, these kids in New York hacking new AI tools. I mean, what, well, what can I them? What? It's funny because I did burn out on Silicon Valley and didn't touch it for years. And then around 2010, with Stanford Library, who had my archive, asked me to get involved in helping them 
create funding to scan the material for students to see uh, IFDN to get excited again and to understand what had happened in the 80s and 90s was a unique time. And then I started looking to where we are now and what are the challenges to real innovation and where are we going. And that led us to, um, so the project is ongoing. We did the book. We've done these worldwide exhibits for 100 million people have of genius to the state. But now I've created a, a nonprofit education program to try to bring some of these stories to the next generation and inspire and educate them because they're not teaching in Silicon Valley or anywhere else. They're not teaching the history of what really happened in the 80s and 90s. So that led me to look at today's generation and what are their interests and concerns. So, yeah, I was shooting this hackathon, these college hackers, and they shot. They were up all night writing code to compete. And guess what? The top prize was a hack for social good. That just blew my mind. I was like, wait, wait, we're back in the 80s. Yay. And the 80s, believe me, it was interesting because you might not think of the 80s as a time like of idealism, but the people who came into the Valley had been raised at a time of values that were coming in the 60s of, you know, this humanist, let's change right. the world kind of philosophy, meeting the space right, race. Right. So, so they had a perfect time and place to, to, to exert their power and their passion. And today we now have all these new technologies coming at us, whether it's printing or nanotech or genomics or robotics and AI and machine learning and, you know, nanotech, all this stuff is coming at us. It's a new wave. How are we going to catch that wave? How is that going to create jobs? And how is that going to grow our economy the way it did in the 80s and 90s? We're still coasting on the tremendous growth and transition that happened in the 80s and 90s. So this next generation is at a crucial turning point. The world, global warming is real. I don't know how much the economy is really real. Probably 50% of the 3% growth is financial churn. So that's not meaningful. Job creation may never come back. With, with factories and stuff, but, you know, we just need to figure out how to catch that next wave. So I'm really interested in what these kids are thinking, and it turns out a lot of them are very idealistic. They are looking around looking for, why am I here? What is my passion? What can I apply my energies to that's going to yield something useful? Uh, and and they're doing it a little bit earlier than probably in my generation. So I'm just right. I'm continuing the project. This is like phase two of Fearless Genius or Next Generation. And right, going so out to fearless, it's fearless genius. And it, 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 it's a great name for our age because there are huge challenges. I mean, you mentioned global warming, you and you know, and and increasing joblessness because of AI and robotics. I mean, we know that these problems are looming. It, it's going to take some fearless genius to to uh, accommodate change that's coming. Exactly, uh, and I very, want that for my own selfish reasons. I'm not Mr. Alvarez. I want to document stories. I do these talks all over, and usually young entrepreneurs come up to me, and it's now about photography, it's about stories that I witnessed, and they're inspired. And people are calling and reaching out from India and China that they want to know more about that original animating spirit of the valley. People think it's all very corrupt and it's all about money, and a lot of times it is right now. But the original spirit was, was invention and innovation and creativity. It was like the source of creativity. Um, these hackers were like artists, and they and they can be, and they continue to be. Realist Genius, The Digital Revolution from 1985 to 2000, that was the book we published. It just, it, two years ago, it's still going around the world, it just got published in mainland China, and the exhibits continue to travel. I'm having another one in July in Santa Fe. So that's the history. Now, how do we leverage mm -hmm. that to talk about 
So, yeah, so I'm very interested in today's thing, and I continue, and I'm starting to do that. I'm going to be out in the Valley in a couple of weeks shooting, mm-hmm. again, some some young entrepreneurs and an incubator. I want some kids to solve climate change, but, you know, it probably won't be a young kid that solves climate change. It'll be a, it'll be a series of different events that'll happen, um, but they'll be more like a little bit more advanced scientists that know where the bodies are buried or what not to waste time on, um, and which is why history is important. Yeah, you, you said something earlier that applies to the people working in technology as well about, you know, follow what interests you, even if you don't think you're going to make money with it. You were talking about photographers, right? But this applies yeah. to technology folks as well. It's like follow, Joseph Campbell said, follow your bliss, but follow what right. interests you and the money will come, right? Because if, obviously if it interests you, it probably interests other people as well. There's probably a problem that you're solving that is common to us all. And so there will be, you know, you'll be able to make a living from it, solving a problem that, that, that's common. So, I mean, that, that's insight for technology people, right? Don't just chase the money, but chase what interests you and you'll, you'll find a, a career from that or. Well, that's a great point. I think the, I think for me, the ultimate lesson of the project, the Fearless Genius Project isn't, about tech, it's about what is worth doing. You know, what are you putting mm. your life into? What are you willing to sacrifice to accomplish your dreams? And and the things I learned from documenting Steve Jobs for three years, uh, sort of shadowing him in his world, was you know really really critical to figuring out my own path, which is just to you know totally focus on what's important to you and then never give up. And by the way, this idea of following your bliss. I mean, I studied just. And that's really intrinsic to all my interest in culture. And, and you know, I think that it sounds cliche and stuff, but life is, I mean, when you do see what happens out in the real world, life is clearly going to be really short. So if you don't do that, you're just going to burn out at some point on the compromises you've made. You're not going to be a happy yeah. person. And you're not going to do, you're never going to hit it out of the park, but you'll probably fail. Probably you're going to be ahead of the culture a little bit if you're doing something. I mean, it's really interesting. Phil Toledano, the great fine art photographer, um, very inspiring guy, he once said to me, your project is three years ahead. Nobody's going to get this. <laughs> you know, hmm. it's too esoteric. And so you're probably going to suffer a lot with this. But, um, you know, he thought it was interesting. And and he'd had the same experience with some of his projects. He had been ahead of ahead of the time that it would become of interest. So I think that often happens. And will you be able to make a living from it? Probably not right away, and therefore we're all looking for the new model for photographers to make a living. I mean, commercial photography is under tremendous pressure. Journalism is not dead, but it's really hard to make a living at it. There's all these different Mm. ways we need to figure out, you know, so what I'm trying to do is create a sort of uh, cross-media or transmedia project with Fearless Genius where we have this core story and it gets expressed as a book, as an exhibit, as a film, as a nonprofit education program. All of these different pieces of it get expressed, and and that allows us to create different revenue streams. And you know, but ultimately, all my books and my projects have gone into um, creating funding for some aspect of education. So that's what drives right. me. Right, because you're trying to educate this new generation of kids that um, are going to help change the world. 
Yeah, I want them to think bigger. I want them to reach higher. And they're not supported by the investment community to do long-term stuff. I mean, back in the 80s, you could get funding for seven, eight years on stuff that might involve hard science. Just go Mm -hmm. out to the Valley today and try to get an investment in your startup that's hard science. It's very, very hard. It'll either be um, incorporated into an internal R&D project at a huge company um, that can afford it, or it'll be perhaps a government grant from the NIS, um, you know, from the Science Foundation, NSF. Yeah, or some, Foundation, exactly. some, mm-hmm. yeah some, some government grant until that's going to be all cut off soon, though. So the VC community can't afford to take long-term risks. Uh, it's very hard. I don't, you know, criticize them for that, but they did in the early days because they were as crazy as the inventors. But right. <laughs> So, I don't know how we probably got off track from where you were going, but you asked some really no, good no, questions. No, 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 no. This has been great, Doug. You know, I really appreciate the time, and you know, thank you for being on. Thanks for listening, and be sure to check out the book at makeyoufamous.co.